on the topic of sexual assault. I really, I did want to go as deep as I could into two people's heads because I think what the play is trying to do is complicate our reactions or our responses to these people by seeing them in the fullness of their lives and understanding the history that brought them to this moment. And I think when you know all of that, it's much harder to assess what you think. Come in. Hey, man, I'm sorry I'm late. The train's Shut up! You're here! And good thing, because we've got lots of work. It's Employee of the Month with Katie Lazarus, the talk show featuring unforgettable guests with incredible jobs. And now, here's my boss and your host, Katie Lazarus. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Employee of the Month. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus. And if it's your first time tuning in, Employee of the Month is a show where you get a glimpse into people's careers. Mainly, it's a chance just to ask, like, am I alone in wondering what is it I'm doing and how come I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grow up, even though I am grown up? Um, I'm really thrilled to have our current guest on, mainly because I've actually seen all of her plays. She has nine plays, and there are not enough female playwrights, but I had fallen in love with Wendy Wasserstein and was so sad when she had passed and was so thrilled um, to find Anna Ziegler's work. And it's not that they are one and the same, because actually another one of Anna's fabulous, fabulous traits is that she works on so many different subjects. But um, she did share Wendy Wasserstein's, she does share Wendy Wasserstein's keen insight into uh, relationships between females, females and males, and um, women with themselves and the existential crisis uh, they go through. And I, I can often relate, and sometimes I don't, And but I certainly learn. And so that's what I, I really have loved about her work. I hope you will as well. Um, so without further ado, here's my interview with the one and only Anna Ziegler. Currently in New York right now, you have The Last Match, which I, I cannot recommend enough. It is such a good play. Not to worry, I keep recommending it to everyone. That is um, also currently out, and you can catch that um, as well at the Roundabout Theater, and you can catch actually at the Manhattan Theater Club if you're in New York for either one of those. What is it like having two plays simultaneously on stage, as well as you're developing actually for HBO. You're also developing Allegra Goodman, one of her novels, Intuition, for um, Sundance AMC. Then you're also supposed to be writing a screenplay. Did you know that? <laughs> and then you you simultaneously will have things like Boy, you know, in Atlanta, Honolulu, Chicago, and, and so forth, Well, which is another play, not her son, Boy. And you have two kids. I do. I have two boys. So um, logistically... How do you handle having three boys? Right. Yes. I mean, the easiest... Did you guys get that pun because it was a play? All right. I got it. I thought it was good. Thank yeah. Thank you. Um, my my the, dad. <laughs> the easiest answer or the easiest uh, part of that question to answer is how I deal with other productions of my plays that are happening out of town. And the answer is I don't. Okay. Um, so that... So, you know, if, if a play has been published and, uh, and for instance, it's happening in Honolulu or um, in Atlanta where Boyd... Those are those were two places where boy just just closed. Um, I was really only uh, involved to the extent that sometimes the directors would email me with questions, um, but I did not go see those productions, for instance. Um, although it would have been great to have an excuse to go to Honolulu, why didn't I go? 
Um, but I guess I didn't go because <laughs> of all this other stuff that's happening. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that on the one hand, it's kind of exhausting because you think about um, all the things you should be doing at every moment. But um, you can really only do one thing at a time. So you just, I mean, my, uh, I guess my, my, my way of thinking about this fall, which is more busy than I probably have ever been, uh, is just to focus on the thing that I have to do at that exact moment um, yeah. and try not to be overwhelmed by the idea of the rest of the stuff. Yeah. Entertainment can be a bit of feast or famine, I'm told. Right. And that, you know, you, right, 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 you know, right. and so yes. you thought, okay, I've got to seize all these opportunities. I need to say yes to everything that I get finally because I wasn't getting things for a while or whatever it is, or I never know if they'll continue. Totally. Do, do you experience that feeling? Yeah. I mean, I think, I guess since, so Photograph 51 had this sort of high profile production in London a couple years ago with Nicole Kidman, and that definitely shifted my career. And I started, yeah, I started getting more offers and, you know, having some choices about sort of what I wanted to do. And um, uh, yeah, so I feel like I'm in a moment where I do need to kind of capitalize on uh, people being sort of interested in my work. And and it does feel, um, you know, it's kind of scary because you don't, you don't want to um, seem like you are not interested in things, but you also can't say yes to everything. And um, I'm always worried that I'm like saying no to the wrong things. And actually, that would have been an amazing project. So, you know, I'm basically just, um, uh, you know, guilt ridden uh, and worried at all times. But that was you beforehand, too. <laughs> I have a feeling. Yeah, yeah. No, nothing has changed <laughs> um, in that respect. Let's let's start with that play. And then I do want to talk about um, the last match and actually, which are currently in production as well. But let's talk about Photograph 51. You, you mentioned that it was it felt like a pivotal time in your career. Um, just for folks who haven't seen it, it's about Rosalind Franklin, who um, was working on, as a scientist, was working on DNA. And what's fascinating I found about your play is it's not just that she was a female and that's why she didn't get credit, but that her own personality and her own challenges got in her way. Is that is Yeah, that no, that's exactly how I think about it and describe it because it what was really interesting to me about her was not yeah it was not that she was just um you know kind of uh in this sexist environment um which is for all female scientists um which is so great for you all to remember and no, I'm kidding because you already know <laughs> what it's like <laughs> just in terms of thinking about what would be dramatic I obviously have a lot of interest and sympathy for anyone who's um, toiling in a sexist environment. But in terms of what was interesting to me about making it into a play, it was, um, yeah, the way in which she got in her own way. Um, because that, it, it, you know, there wasn't any reason why um, she should not have uh, discovered the double helix before Watson and Crick. What are the ways that you feel like you might get in your own way? <laughs> Good segue. Um, if any, I did mention not. I did mention the guilt and the worry. So there's probably some of that that gets in my way sometimes. Um, that you know the voices in your head that you're like never, you know, doing well enough. Those are hard to um, sometimes turn off. And uh, I don't know what are the other ways I get in my own way. Um, if, really, if any, I really like um, you know watching television and. Um, not being at home. And so um, all, of the, all of those things uh, are like more fun than writing. I can, I can think of lots of things that are more fun than writing. So I procrastinate a lot. Uh, and I think that that 
that also um, certainly is me getting in my own way, talking myself out of it sometimes. It's so interesting to actually be able to have the chance to talk to someone because from the outside, you know, you have had nine plays, two short films. You're now working on your first screenplay as well as yeah, two I've been TV shows. Doing in this a long time, so yeah, I've, I have I have some I've I have some productivity, but people always seem to think I'm very prolific. But you know, there's a lot of time when I'm not writing. Um, I want to <laughs> I want to talk about. The last match first, um, which is about tennis um, and these two couples and also these players and what it takes to succeed and what it's like to not win and what it's like to have a passion, um, whether or not it works out for you. And it also talks about circumstance of, you know, what is luck, be it in tennis and, and out in other ways. I'm trying not to give too much away. Um, but in in real life, off the court, um, and I found that even if you're not into tennis as much as I am, and even if you're not an athlete, I found in the arts it it it, it rang true. I was curious how much of your experience as a professional tennis player, <laughs> um, you know, if you can talk about how autobiographical the last match was. Um, yes. So uh, I've been a professional tennis fan for a long time. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I really did, uh, I think as I was writing it, was thinking about it as certainly as like a metaphor for, um, you know, anyone who has ambition in any realm, you know, I mean, it, there, there's, there are lines in the play about how um, and one of the players is really tortured by playing tennis. You know, he wants to do really well. Um, he's obviously, he's good at it. He's reached a very high level. Well, they're all good. They're all good, right, exactly. And so the, you know, becomes very difficult. So uh, I think a lot of the play is about how um, it's almost impossible to be satisfied no matter where you are in the pecking order um, and how both demoralizing that is and how amazing it then is that we keep going anyway and sort of keep wanting things. And the loneliness. It, what was interesting to me was because I didn't discover my calling till later in life, um, meaning 27, which is not later by, uh, you know, actual human terms, but in Hollywood, um, I felt so grateful to have it. But what I loved about The Last Match is it also speaks to the loneliness of of having a passion, whether or not it, it, you know, enables you to succeed, be it economically or artistically and really express what it is you're trying to get out there. But just I had I had seen having a calling as actually something that set me free in real life. It allowed me to um, need less in relationships and um, – I felt lucky because I know that, you know, a lot of people don't right, right, know what right. it is they want, even though it doesn't mean that it's like meant that I've been able to do those things necessarily. Right. No, I mean, I think it's sort of a double-edged sword, right? Because it's great to kind of know what you want and um, and have sort of these goals in your life and, and you know, fills your life to a certain extent. But I think it also, as we, as we were saying, you know, it, it – it, it creates the possibility of more disappointment, you know, because I, I mean, I, sometimes I think, oh, maybe it would be great to sort of be a person who doesn't quite know what they want. And uh, and maybe they maybe they enjoy themselves more. I mean, I think the grass is always greener, probably. I think that the grass is greener. What I was going to say is that I think the person who doesn't care either way, 
So I know many people who don't know what it is they want to do with their lives and are actually really torn up no, about it. No, of course. Yes. Some people are very tortured so by that. It's the lack don't of mean self to make light of it. Yeah. Lack of self-awareness, yeah. I feel like, is, is yeah. the um, – it's not – you're not making light of it. It's, it's talking about a real thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. it's, because the question of, of passion versus talent, how hard do you want this, um, also comes out there, as well as um, the other skills that have nothing to do with your actual physical – Ability because they were all good is what I said. You right, know what I right, mean? And right. sure, some are preternaturally, unbelievably, undeniably talented yep. and are almost don't even seem human. But there's so much more that goes to. Yeah. No. I mean, I think the, at least for this play, you know, the choice of tennis is it made so much sense to me because it's just such a psychological game. I mean, the actual physical skills that these guys have at the top of the game are, as you say, phenomenal. I mean, I think they, you know, they can all ace each other. They can all hit amazing forehands that none of us would be able to return. But, you know, they they go through these incredible highs and lows in their careers and even within matches. And it's all completely within, psychological. But with the, you do see it as psychological. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, as you say, you know, there are a couple players who probably do kind of rise above that. Um, but I think that's, you know, that's probably what makes someone like Federer Federer for the time, you know, that he was kind of unbeatable. But then again, he hasn't been unbeatable, you know. Yes. He went through years of, of being in a sort of, in a slump, at least a slump compared to where he had been. So, you know, even, even the top guys, um, if they can sort of stretch out that sort of psychological dominance for a long time, eventually it does dip. I also really liked tennis as the sport and why I was saying that it relates even if you're not a sports fan maybe you do musical theater maybe you like musical theater maybe you uh, just like music um, the idea that first of all your income is tied to what you're doing at that moment so if you are playing <laughs> what round you get to actually changes your income um, and then the other part that I the reason I was bringing up theater and music is that tennis players play all year round yeah and so there isn't an off season. Right, right. No, it's relentless. And and so I found that fascinating. And I think that's in part why I really saw a connection between it and the arts. And I was just using physical arts. Yeah. Um, it's not to say that writing isn't very painful on my calves or my tush. <laughs> right. um, no, I know. But it is why these guys are getting injured all the time now. Because there's just no, yeah, they have they have no breaks. And um, and as you say, they're, they're uh financial security is tied to how well they do. I mean, the players who are kind of in the, like, I don't know, I think probably in the ranked, you know, 50 to 100, you know, and they're still really excellent players. Yeah. You know, they kind of need to get to, like, the first round of a slam, you know? I mean, and even that is a fair bit of money um, just to just to get, just to qualify. Uh, I don't know. It's a crazy system. We could talk about tennis the whole time. But <laughs> I'll ask one last question. Yeah, yeah. So I assumed that one player was uh, inspired at least loosely on Federer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the, the Tim Porter character, who's, who's American um, in the play, uh, but is, is a guy who's been sort of dominating at the game um, and is thinking about retiring, um, uh, is certainly, certainly Federer was in my mind, yeah. And the other one? And the other one who's a Russian player um, who's younger and is sort of trying to, like, conquer his demons um, is, I think, well, first of all, I wrote this play a while back. So it was, I think I was sort of channeling, like, Djokovic at the time, mm -hmm. who was, you know, 
um, he's, he's Serbian and not Russian, but I think I had his voice in my head a little bit. And, you know, he had, he had sort of yet to make his name, I think, when I was writing this play. I don't want to give away too much about the play, but I will say that the player is not gluten-free. That's the one <laughs> scoop I'm going to give. That's right. No, Djokovic, right. I didn't, he does not have all of the crazy training things that Djokovic does. And it also talks to the uh, – I was also making light in part because when you say it's inspired by, it's loosely inspired by. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, it was just fun to have sort of some voices in my head. Um, I want to talk about actually it seems like such a difficult play to pull off and I want to give some context for it. Um, you have a significant other, some might call a partner, and not crime, in innocence, um, who who works in this in this in he's a yeah. lawyer at a university and a predominant part of his work has been focusing on all of these sexual assault cases mm-hmm. and that for the uninitiated, um, which I hope most of the listeners hopefully mm-hmm. are, but statistically know that that's not possible since I think it's one in four or one in five women are um, face sexual assault and one in seven men face some type of also. Um, so some schools try to go through that system. And some people actually, I think they need to go through that system instead of going to, through the legal system. I mean, I think it's always a choice. I mean, you can always go either route. But I, 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 I believe, I, I don't think I'm wrong about this, that most, uh, most women go through the college, you know, as opposed to going, going to the cops. What inspired, actually? I think it was hearing about a lot of cases, you know, um, a lot of different cases. And, and, I, and I don't think that the case in the play you know, resembles uh, any of the ones I heard about in any details or, you know, I mean, I I think that it's kind of came out of an amalgamation or, you know, feeling like I had a sense of the kinds of things that are happening and then taking from that what what I found most interesting. But yeah, I I wanted to, I wanted to look at one of those cases that, um, you know, is murky that, you know, the kind that I think sometimes haunts my husband a little bit. What was the choice to have, in addition to sex, um, race and class also yeah. be so prevalent? <laughs> so I'd like to say that I sort of planned for this to be like a sort of um, political play or something like that. But I, I actually wrote this play um, in a writing workshop where you had to write a play in a week. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and so truly, um, I just started uh, hearing these two characters um, and I wrote a bunch of monologues in that week. Um, and, you know, I, it really only occurred to me later, um, you know, the ways in which um, it sort of complicates the play, that, that, um, that the guy in the play is, uh, is black and, and does come from a different background um, than the woman in the play. Yeah, it made it not only about sex, it, it makes it about... Um do you want to send a black male to right 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 no i mean i think it's been interesting it's really interesting to talk to people about this play and watch them watch it because i think that there's um you know what i hope is it sort of forces people to really listen to it i guess that's my hope because you know the um i think most of the audience uh would have sort of knee-jerk sympathy for either of these characters but what happens when they're um sort of up against each other. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. 
you you did another play that's gonna that was I imagined was gonna rile audiences, Dove and Ali, uh-huh. which is about a little the Middle while East. Back. And so I was thinking, when you do a play that you know mm-hmm. a ton of people have a ton of feelings about, how do you shut out everyone else's opinion so that you can focus on what you want to write? Well, I mean, I think part of it is that in the writing process, you're not hearing all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the tricky thing is. Uh, is sort of shutting out um, what you hear uh, as you start, you know, as the play starts getting produced um, so that you um, don't sort of uh, wimp out and decide never to let it be produced again. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I think it's really hard. I, I, I think especially sort of in the age of social media, it's really hard not to have a sense of what people think of the work. Um, and... Uh, I try not to look, but sometimes I, you know, succumb to it. And and the other thing is, I mean, I this isn't exactly your question, but I mean, it, sometimes I love hearing people talk about the play. You know, I mean, I, I love going to talkbacks, and especially if I'm not involved in them, I love just listening to people because it's such a, you know, it's like such an honor to to think that people are sort of engaging with your work in a serious way, even if they didn't like it or even if they, you know, I mean, hopefully they're not offended by it, but, you know, even if it riled them up in some way. You're adapting it for television with HBO? Yes, yes. I would say we're in very early stages, but I did um, sell a pitch um, that was, you know, sort of based on the based on the play. Congratulations. Thank you. And is it because it's a topic you want to flesh out further? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I don't think when I was writing the play, I thought, oh, this is going to translate to screen in some way. But, um, but once the play was out there... Um, a lot of people came to me and said that they thought it could be a movie or they thought it could be a TV show. And so, of course, that, like, sort of planted the seed. And, um, and I, I, yeah, I guess, and doing it in L.A., of course, people are going to see it. Why and, would and, you do and, it in and, a theater think, when you can do that. it? Right, exactly. Um, so, what about a musical date rape? Yeah, I mean, you know, the musical's coming next. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's funny. When I describe this play, I always say, you know, and it's not actually as much of a downer as it sounds because, you know, I think if you tell people you wrote a play about sexual misconduct on a college campus, um, they're like, why would I want to see that, that play? It's interesting you know? that you call it misconduct. How as come? opposed to assault, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I think the category of these cases, just from a legal term, are I think they're sexual misconduct cases. Um, so I think that's where I'm getting that from. Um, not less of a statement about what I think happened in this case. What do you think happened in this case? <laughs> I, can't, I can't say. That's for the audience to decide. Stay coy on that one. I'm, I'm allowing you to do so. <laughs> and while you're also doing Actually with HBO, you're adapting Intuition, Allegra Goodman's um, novel yeah. for AMC Sundance. Yeah, that's right. So what's it like getting to work on someone else's work instead of your own? It's been really interesting. I mean, I've never done it before. So um, it's all it all feels really new to me. And... I think on the one hand, it's it's kind of freeing because you are not coming up with every plot point yourself. You know, there is this framework that's there. And um, and on the other hand, it's really hard to break away from it. And sometimes you have to, you know, because a novel is not a TV show. <laughs> and you have to figure out how um, how it can translate. And, and you also want to stay true to the book. I mean, I love this book. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a tricky thing. And I'm... Um, 
really just just starting, uh, and I, I'm you know I'm looking forward to the challenge of it. But um, but yeah, I mean I I I, I guess I would just hope that like, Allegra Goodman would watch this show one day if it ever comes to pass, and you know feel like it captured her book. I see, and so I don't know if I'm projecting, but a sort of melancholy to a lot of your characters that there's a um, a disconnect that even if on paper their lives seem very nice, mm -hmm. they themselves feel quite lonely. Uh -huh. Is that does that resonate? I don't know where you see that, Katie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I think that's true of a lot of my characters. I mean, I I think there's also or at least my way into writing plays is finding um, the kind of inner conflict in a character, right? So uh, there are different ways of doing that and different ways of, you know, getting conflict on stage. But, you know, one way is to have, have someone who has an exterior that, that is very different from their interior and how, you know, how are they sort of at war with themselves and how does that impact their lives and the lives of other people? You mentioned before that um, when you were talking about developing, actually, and it was in, during a week, mm -hmm. and that you were writing monologues. Is that typically? Can you talk a little bit about your process? Yeah, I mean that was so that was atypical. I would say I I don't write plays in a week, and um, and I've never written a play before that was this, that's essentially a monologue play. Um, but I really wanted to. I was really why? Um, well, I think for this topic, I just felt like. I on sexual really, assault, and I'm going to yeah. make you call it sexual assault instead <laughs> of sexual misconduct. <laughs> um, on the topic of sexual assault, I really, I did want to go as deep as I could into two people's, into two people's heads because I, um, I think what the play is trying to do is, uh, you know, complicate our reactions or our responses to these people by seeing them in the sort of fullness of their lives and, you know, understanding the history that brought them to this moment. Um, and I and I think when you know all of that, it's much harder to sort of assess um, what you think. You know, blacks are disproportionately uh, affected negatively by our prison system, but, but women are as well. And, and particularly with sexual assault cases, I mean, you know, I remember when date rape first became even known as a phrase, you and I were about... 15, mm -hmm. and I'm outing your age, um, <laughs> you know, at that time, four out of five women with external bruises would not get their case even heard. Uh -huh. And so it hasn't changed that much since then, but I am so in awe of these younger women who feel more articulate to talk about these things. They've empowered, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that has really changed that aspect of it, for sure. I'm, I learn a lot from their bravery and their courage, you know, and, and obviously I'm also talking about, I was curious for you, you know, how much the Weinstein and, and all of the different cases where people have finally come out and mm -hmm. spoken, how much did that influence your experience now with the play? Because I know you yeah. wrote it a while ago. <laughs> it's really interesting that that's all happening, right, as this play is um, starting in New York. And uh, yeah, I mean, I assume people will hear it, it will resonate in a slightly different way. You know, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not exactly sure how. I mean, I, I, I think I think for me, there's, you know, there's an element in the play um, about how women in our culture um, are raised in such a way that makes it, it makes it very hard um, for so many reasons to say what they want yes. or to say what they don't want. 
um, you know, and so. Or to know. I mean, if, 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 know, if we right, go even exactly. one step deeper, I would say, right. that to even know what they, what right. it is that they want, right. and therefore to articulate it. And she's a particularly articulate Yes, that's character. right, the character is. Yeah, and she says, you know, that she's, uh, her default state is a zone of wanting something and not wanting it at the same time. And I think that that's, um, I don't know, I would venture that there's some universality to that. And, uh, you know, when I read the stories of, of the women, and the you know, involved in the Weinstein thing, um, I mean, I, st you know, it's, it's really, it's, it, I mean, it, it, it resonates only to the extent that in the sort of some of the like lesser, like less extreme stories that these women just felt like they couldn't say no for various reasons, you know, for the, because of their careers and stuff. Um, and I'm certainly not, I'm not blaming them. I'm just sad that the, um, that our society is kind of set up like that. And then of course, in so many of these cases, it's much more black and white that something horrible, um, you know, went down. And I think that's what's sad is that um, even in the most I want to say objectively speaking, black and white situations, um, it is almost impossible for, for women to be able to be heard. And so I was curious why you wanted to focus on race and class and gender, because it's so many elements to it. But I think what you're saying, or what I'm taking from it, uh, from the play, is that you can never take all of these things out of it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, right, exactly. There's I mean, hope you know. Hopefully, at least from a sort of dramatic standpoint, uh, yeah, it's just sort of a reminder of how many different different things go into, as you say, you know, the decision that someone is making in that room, um, and uh, and what they have on their minds, what they shouldn't really have on their minds when they're making that decision. You know, I mean, it, yeah, I think it's. Um, I imagine in real life it is. Uh, super complicated, so just trying to reflect that. Have any of your plays or uh, short films and now television shows and movies, have have any of them actually been autobiographical at all? Not overtly, um, but it's funny. There's a play that I'm working on now um, that's certainly so not out in the world, just a draft that uh, is uh, completely autobiographical and... Um, yeah, it's a it's a really scary thing. I'm sort of like, why am I why am I writing this? <laughs> but I very much understand. <laughs> Someone who's working on a book right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, it's terrifying. Maybe no one will ever see it. I don't know. Can I ask what it's about? Yeah, I mean, it's I guess there was there was a moment. I, I guess this is probably about a year ago. Um, yeah, it was about a year ago because my son is I have a son who's one now. So shortly after he was born, um, when. Uh, my grandfather, who I, like, you know, I'm very attached to, um, and who is 99 now, uh, you know, it sort of looked like his health was declining sort of precipitously, um, and we weren't sure what was happening, you know, as you never are with someone who is, at that point, 98. Um, and so, uh, and so there, yeah, I was sort of just struck by this moment, um, you know, it sounds kind of like cheesy but you know of my son sort of entering the world and um and my other son my older son kind of starting to develop a sense of time and our and our sort of space and time and how we exist in time um at the same time as my sort of grandfather was you know bemoaning <laughs> um 
you know, being old. So I, I, I it's, so it's basically, you know, it's about time and aging. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I don't know exactly what it's about, as you can tell. How much research do you do into the characters? Let's say, you know, you mentioned with the last match that one character is Russian, you know, and you had a black character, and, and um, I'm also going to reveal that you are not black. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, how much research? How much research do I do? Um, I mean, it depends on the character. I guess um, I, I mean, you know. And you're not a male. I'm sorry, I I'm should not, have also. I'm not a man. I should have put that um, or trans. I guess. I mean, certainly, like a play like Photograph Fifty One, you know, I'm doing a ton of research um, because it's a it's a story that I want to, to a certain degree, stay true to and tell the actual historical, um, you know, account. But I, uh, yeah, I don't think that with other characters. I mean, for instance, the tennis world was one I felt I knew pretty well. Um, I probably I'd already read lots of books about tennis, um, just for fun. You know, Agassiz's memoir, Open, which is so good. Um, Levels of the Game by John McPhee. Those are great books that happen to be about tennis. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think I was sort of immersed in that world. Um, so I, don't, I didn't do any sort of specific research into those characters because I felt like I kind of, you know, maybe maybe with hubris, felt like I, I knew some of, I felt like a sense of those players. Um, you know, I guess in terms of other characters, um, I don't tend to do a lot of research. I mean, I I feel like, you know, I live in the world and I sort of get a sense of like these voices in my head. And, and I feel like in sort of the development of a play, if I've gone really far wrong, that will, that will come out. And, you know, I will um, either scrap it or, you know, revise it as I go. So, but uh, for the initial, Initial draft, um, I wouldn't say I, I'm necessarily sitting down and, like, reading a book about what it is to be a black man. It is um, – anyone can be a playwright, meaning that it doesn't cost money, um, although it costs a ton of money to be able to go and see the theater. In your experience, since you've been in the theater world for so long, how many of the playwrights who are regularly getting mm-hmm. their plays made mm-hmm. – Started out with enough cultural capital, be it money or mm-hmm. because, you know, like if you grow up in Europe, you can go and see theater and the opera and things like that. And you don't have to be for money. Right. And it's not only money. Like I didn't grow up in New York, but I have friends who didn't grow up with m- money by any yeah. standards. But they got to go to arts and cultural events in a way that like yeah. are not as – as um possible in other places. Yeah, I'm trying to think about this. I mean... So part of it is money, yes. Yeah. And then part of it is also cultural capital. Yeah. Does that does that resonate? Because they're, they're two different factors at once. It does. You could grow up really rich and never go near a theater, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, I guess... Hmm. <laughs> Most of my friends who are playwrights, I would say, certainly didn't grow up super rich. Um, but were always... You know, my my guess is sort of um, very interested in the arts. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I have a lot of friends, you know, who are successful playwrights who I don't think, you know, who didn't grow up in New York seeing plays um, and uh, found their way into playwriting in other ways. Um, you know, I have friends who got into playwriting through acting. You know, and I and I think, um, yeah, that's that's certainly one way. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's all these stories I think of people who are, um, who really, yeah, you're you're sort of it's it's sort of confounding how they ended up doing this, and yet 
and yet they are, and they're like super successful. So, well, because I was thinking, like, I had Lin Manuel Miranda on the show, yeah. and it's not that he came from money, but his dad loved musical theater, right? And right. the fact that like he could even go to a high school where Stephen Sondheim was like in the vicinity, right? Right, is remarkable to me because I didn't grow up in New York. So that's that would be an example of cultural capital, right? Or just making money. like a life in the theater seem real or yes. possible. Yes, I yeah. think that that's. Yeah, I think that's that's a big part of it. Um, but yeah, but there are always exceptions. I, I I think I don't have a great answer to your good question um, unless I thought a lot more about it. Growing up in New York, I'm imagining you going to the theater all the time as a kid. Is that true? Well, I did see Cats four times. Um, wow. Yeah, I know. So your parents were of punishing you, huh? <laughs> yeah. exactly. Did you like Did you like it a lot? I as must kid? have liked it, but my memory of it is being terrified because you you know those cats would come into the audience and yeah. I like really didn't want them to touch me or go near me. So, I, but I must have asked to go back. <laughs> so there there we there we have it. The sort of irony. Um, but I um, yeah I went to see musicals maybe a, maybe a musical every year, um, but it wasn't like I grew up seeing the serious plays off Broadway or on Broadway. In um, second grade, you weren't going off to see Eugene O'Neill. I was not, no. I was gonna come up, I was gonna use that example too. I was gonna say, didn't go see Iceman Cometh when I was in third grade. Um, no, I didn't, I didn't. And so when did you discover that this is what I wanna be doing? Um, I'm still in the process of discovering that. Um, I, uh, I mean, I always, I was, I wrote very seriously. I went to this school called St. Anne's in Brooklyn, and it was a very, you know, serious art school. To, you know, it was very, um, a lot of teachers were writers and artists, and so it was very cool to, you know, sort of think of yourself as an artist or someone who wanted to be an artist. So I did a lot of writing poetry and fiction in high school and in college, and my, I think my senior at year at Yale, my senior year in college, I took um, a playwriting class uh, that was taught by a playwright named Arthur Copet, and he also taught in the graduate program at NYU, and I was certainly not considering being a playwright or going to graduate school in playwriting, but I also didn't know what I was going to do, um, and so he was, he was encouraging, and he suggested I apply, and I was... I was off. I, I went to um, to England the year after I graduated from college, and I was writing poetry there, and um, in England, in England, and that was really lonely <laughs> and really I mean, lucrative. Really, I'm really lucrative. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I made a lot of money that year. Um, no, I, I, I was think it through that, a university program. Or? Yeah, oh, okay. yeah. I did. I just I, had an image of you like no, writing no, in a notebook, right? Just in cafes just in England. Yeah. No, pubs. I went to the University of East Anglia, which is um, uh, in a town called Norwich, which is almost two hours out of London. So, so I was not in London. Um, and made famous by Alan Partridge. And uh, well, yes, um, but but East Anglia is um, Norwich. I meant. Oh, oh yes, Norwich, but. East Anglia is a strange, a strange place. Um, but the, uh, yeah, so I would say being sort of lonely writing poetry for a year made playwriting seem more appealing. Um, and I sort of applied to NYU on a whim. And I think, I think Arthur kind of got me in. <laughs> um, and so I uh, then went to grad school. And I think even then did not think I was going to become a playwright. I just needed something to do. Uh, and then it like, you know, kind of took hold, in part because I think writing plays is really hard. And um, that 
motivated me. It still motivates me, you know, to like try to write a better play. And when could you make your living from your work? Or, or, or... How long did that take? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say, well, I had, a, I had, a, I always had a, uh, at least a part-time job um, until two years ago. Um, so maybe, yeah, so maybe <laughs> that was 10, maybe about 10 years. Okay. Yeah. I'm so thrilled that you can now devote your time to writing. And I know um, if your audiences have not seen uh, Anna Ziegler's work, please run, don't walk to go see the last match. Actually, boy, um, you can go to her website to to check out where, because they're all over um, the country and the world. And you can also, again, check out Anna Ziegler Plays One. And it sounds like soon we'll be able to check out your work on HBO and AMC um, as well. And I hope, I really hope that you um, can enjoy seeing your work out in the world. Thanks, Katie. Thank you for being the employee of the month. <laughs>